Good morning, everybody. We're going to read uh, chapters 13 and 14, but the text today will be focused on chapter 14. So. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Abijah began his reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Michal, the daughter of Uriel of Gibeah. Now there was a war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Abijah went out to battle, having an army of valiant men of war, 400,000 chosen men. And Jeroboam drew up his line of battle against him with 800,000 chosen mighty warriors. Then Abijah stood up on Mount Zerim, that is, in the hill country of Ephraim, and said, Hear me, O Jeroboam, and all Israel. Ought you not to know that the Lord of God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, a servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord. And certain worthless scoundrels gathered about him and defiled Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam was young and irresolute and could not withstand them. And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord in the heart of and the hand of the sons of David, because you are a great multitude, and have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made for your gods? Have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, and the sons of Aaron, and the Levites, and made uh, priests for yourselves like the peoples of the other lands? Whoever comes for ordination with a young bull or seven rams becomes a priest of what are no gods. But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. We have priests ministering to the Lord who are the sons of Aaron and the Levites for the service. They offer to the Lord every morning and every evening burnt offerings and incense of sweet spices set out of the showbread on the tables of pure gold and care for the golden lampstands, that is, the lamps may burn every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. Behold, God is with us at our head and our priests with their battle trumpets to sound the call of battle against you. O sons of Israel, do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you cannot succeed. Jeroboam had sent an ambush around to come up upon them from behind, and thus his troops were in front of Judah, and the ambush was behind them. And when Judah looked, behold, the battle was in front and behind them, and they cried to the Lord, and the priests blew the trumpets. Then the men of Judah raised the battle shout, and when the men of Judah shouted, God defeated Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. The men of Israel fled before Judah, and God gave them into their hand. Abijah and his people struck them with a great force, so they fell slain of Israel, 500,000 chosen men. Thus the men of Israel were subdued at that time. And the men of Judah prevailed, because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. And Abijah pursued Jeroboam and took the cities from him, Bethel with his villages, Jeshon and its villages, and Ephron with its villages. Jeroboam did not recover his power in the days of Abjah. The Lord struck him down, and he died. But Abjah grew mighty, and he took fourteen wives and had twenty-two sons and sixteen daughters. The rest of the acts of Abjah, his ways and sayings, are written in the story of the prophet Edo. Abjah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In his days the land had rest for ten years, and Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He took away the foreign altars and the high places, and broke down the pillars, and cut down the ashram, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandment. He also took out of the cities of Judah the high places and incense altars, and the kingdom had rest under him. He built fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest. He had no war in those years, for the Lord gave him peace. And he said to Judah, Let's build these cities and surround them with walls and towers and gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him, and he has given us peace on every side. So they built and prospered. And Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah, armed with large shields and spears, and 280,000 men from Benjamin that carried shields and drew bows. All of these were mighty men of valor. Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and three hundred chariots, and came as far as Mershah. And Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up their lines of battle in the valley of Zephah at Marsha. And Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help, between the mighty and the weak, 
Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar, and the Ethiopians fell until none remained alive, for they were broken before the Lord and his army. The men of Judah carried away very much spoil, and they attacked all the cities around Gerar, for the fear of the Lord was upon them. They plundered all the cities, for there was much plunder in them, and they struck down the tents of those who had livestock and carried away the sheep in abundance and camels. Then they returned to Jerusalem. You may be seated. Try that one more time. I think I caught some of you off guard. Good morning. Good morning. Amen. Hey, I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer. We're going to pray, and then we're going to uh, dive in here to the word this morning. Father, we are grateful for a new year that you've given to us. You are the one who made the heavens and the earth. You formed it. You brought it all to be through your powerful word. You spoke and it happened. And Father, we thank you that today you are still speaking to us through your revealed word. And today we have another opportunity to learn from you. And as your word is read and studied... We ask that you would teach us, that you would move us closer to you in this coming year. We ask that you would draw us near, closer to you, in step with you, intent on walking with you. May we come to rely upon you in this coming year. Perhaps like never before. And in doing so, God, I pray that we would give you glory And I pray that your church here would be about advancing the good news of your gospel message to those who desperately need to hear and know about this good news of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to begin by just giving you a definition this morning. The definition is that of reliance. The definition is not my own. Webster's 1828 Dictionary is the definition I'd like to give to you this morning of this word reliance. It's going to be the theme that we'll be looking at for much of this year. And simply put, it's a rest of mind resulting from a full belief of the integrity of a person or of the certainty of a fact. It's the rest of mind resulting from a full belief of the integrity of a person or of the certainty of a fact. And we might substitute a few words for reliance. Some other working words that we'll insert would be trust, would be confidence, and would be dependence. Trust, confidence, and dependence. For the next three weeks, we'll be tracing this theme of reliance through the life of Asa, king of Judah. Asa's life is, on one hand, a glorious example of what it is to rely upon God. And yet, as we'll come to see in chapter 16, it's also the epitome of not relying on God all the way to the end. We're going to spend this calendar year exploring the scriptures and mining the text and Looking for these examples of reliance. What is it that causes some to rely upon God and others to forsake Him? Reliance upon God is essential to the faith that we've been entrusted with, church. In fact, it'll be well worth the time to spend some Sundays relying, looking at the foundations of this faith. We'll look at the first a few books of the Bible. We'll take Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy... Probably Joshua, maybe Judges. We'll be looking at some of those foundational books in the scripture. And we're going to see that even in those opening pages of God's revealed word, there is a clear pointer toward the Savior to come in Jesus. And we're going to take a few weeks to look at and study the the basics of, of, of our confidence in God. And we're going to be looking at the foundations of the cross. What what's the cross? 
mean for us in Christ? What's the empty tomb entail? These facts that we stand firmly grounded upon as a Christian following Jesus. As a people of God, we rely upon Jesus and his finished work. And we trust that what he says is intended for our good. And so we'll spend some Sundays this year relying specifically on the words of Jesus. We'll we'll take a few weeks to look specifically at what Jesus has said in the Gospels. Words like, come to me. Words like, follow me. Words like, watch and pray. Or words found in Matthew In Matthew's gospel, we see he's talking about making disciples of all the nations. We'll take some time to look at these words of Jesus. And then we'll take the summer months, Lord willing, to conclude our study in the book of Acts. Where we'll see a reliance once again upon the Holy Spirit. Paul is imprisoned. We left him in prison in Acts 21 this past summer. And we're going to see... His reliance upon the Lord to guide him through trials and chains as he makes his journey to Rome. So reliance is a rest of mind resulting from the full belief of the integrity of a person or of the certainty of a fact. Reliance is trust, confidence, dependence. In our case, upon God, upon the Holy Spirit. Upon Jesus, the Son of God, and this revealed word that we have available to us. Walking by faith, which the scriptures call us to be about doing, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, we're called to walk by faith. Walking by faith requires reliance upon this God that we're speaking of this morning. Without it, you're going to revert to your own ways of self-preservation, Your own ways of doing things. If you don't have confidence in God, if you don't have confidence in the Holy Spirit, if you don't have confidence in Jesus, if you don't have confidence in the truth of this word that he's given, you're seldom going to have, by definition, this rest of mind. Reliance is a rest of mind that results from the full belief of the integrity of a person, or the certainty of a fact. So in other words, reliance requires full belief in God. It requires full belief in the certainty that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that three days later, as the scriptures say, he was raised back to life. Reliance requires a full belief in the fact that after Jesus ascended back to heaven, some ten days later, according to the scriptures, the Holy Spirit was poured out on that day of Pentecost in Acts 2. Reliance requires a full belief in the God-breathed word, that his word serves as a lamp to our feet and a light to our path for daily living. Not just for intellectual, I've got that verse, I know what that verse says, but for daily living. So when we come to understand and see the fullness of this reliance, just simply by definition. Have you been relying in this manner upon God? Maybe you're here today and you don't really know what it is to have that settled rest of mind. It's my prayer that over this next year, the Lord will give you a rest of mind that comes from intimately knowing a Savior named Jesus. It's my hope that no matter what may come your way, through full belief in God, in the Holy Spirit, in God's Son, Jesus, and in God's revealed Word, you can walk by faith, confident that what He says, He will also perform. That's walking and living by faith, Romans 4.21. So as we look to the text... Chapter 14 is where we'll begin. Asa is a young man at the time he becomes king. He's a young man. Don't know specifically how old he is. As I'm studying the text, I'm picturing Asa 
about the age of my second son, Isaac. About 13. Maybe I'm off a year or two or more. But it's in that range. He's a young man. The question might come, how does one become king? Well, in the line of the kings, the pattern was that the son or the sons of the king would serve as next in line to the throne. And 2 Chronicles chapter 14 gives us the context as we begin looking at the life of Asa. Look at verse 1 with me. So Abijah rested with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David. The city of David is where? Okay, Jerusalem. Then Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In his days, the land was quiet for 10 years. That's a long time. It was quiet for 10 years in his days. So what we have given to us in chapter 14, verse 1, some observations. Abijah is the father of Asa. And he's died at the beginning here. He's rested with his fathers. Abijah reigned three years following the reign of his father, Rehoboam, who reigned 17, 18 years. Asa is the third king of Judah in the divided kingdom. Remember that? Okay, a little history. The united kingdom began with Saul, and then we had David, and then we had Solomon. And then after Solomon, we have this split. We have Jeroboam, Rehoboam. Remember that? Okay. We're now some 20 years into the divided kingdom. The northern kingdom, the ten tribes, the southern kingdom, Judah, the two tribes, and Benjamin. And Asa, the son of Abijah, reigns now in Judah. And the Bible says that he is going to reign for 40 one years in Judah. On the timeline of history from about 911 BC to 870 is what we're looking at here, the window for King Asa. If you were the king's son, next in line for the throne, you never knew exactly when you might have to step in. And begin leading. You never knew, in fact, if you were going to have the chance to reign either. See, being next in line was dangerous business oftentimes. Others are seen in the scriptures plotting and scheming to remove a particular son or the whole lot of sons belonging to a particular king. Abijah has died, and it's time for Asa to step into leadership as the next king of Judah. The writer of the Chronicles doesn't leave us guessing as to the character of this young man. The second verse is a summary of his life. A summary, by the way, that's only shared with seven other kings in Judah. Asa is one of eight who has this familiar refrain of doing good and right in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 14, verse 2. Asa did what was right, excuse me, what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Wouldn't it be great to have that on your epitaph? This man did what was Good and right in the eyes of the Lord is God. To leave behind to the world that what you did was good in the sight of the Lord. Asa's life was going to be to a large extent a refreshing drink of water to those under his leadership in Judah. For 20 years, character emanating from the throne had been largely absent. Abijah had some good qualities, as you read in 2 Chronicles 13. 
And he speaks some good words. But his life pattern wasn't good and right in the eyes of the Lord. Rather, according to 1 Kings 15, Abijah walked in all the sins of his father which he had done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. So Asa is bringing new leadership. This is a new start for Judah. A new approach to how Judah is going to walk out their days. With any new leadership comes questions, right? Questions come with new leadership. Is he going to lead like Abijah? Will he be on the throne longer than his father? Remember, Abijah was only on the throne three years. Is this going to look like Rehoboam's leadership? How is this young man, Asa, going to lead differently? With 20 years of questionable leadership in Judah, are things ever going to get any better around here? And you think about some of the questions, and you also couple those questions with some potential excuses Asa very well could have brought to the forefront. I mean, after all, he was a young man. He was a young man. He could have drawn attention to his youth, but he doesn't. His father's and and grandfather's lives were not defined as good and right in the eyes of the Lord. He could have pleaded innocence on the basis of his environment. He could have talked about his surroundings, his, his genes. He just didn't have good genes growing up. He just didn't have what it took. He could have made those excuses. seems to be that he wasn't instructed diligently in the ways of the Lord. Could have blamed it on those who went before him, that he, he didn't have the knowledge to lead God's people in God's ways because he was ignorant of God's law. No one taught him this knowledge and recognition of a truth standard. Yeah, Asa, as you look at the text, Asa had some legitimate excuses perhaps. But he didn't rely on them. The text instead seems to indicate that Asa already had a relationship with Jehovah God before he becomes king. If you look at that verse 2, it says that Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. Did you catch that personal pronoun? His God. For Asa, the Lord was his God. There was an element of personal faith. You can mark that personal faith because we're going to see a couple different elements that are going to come to light in the text. The first one here we see is this personal faith evident in the life of Asa. Even though a young man, even though he grew up in an environment less than godly, perhaps, even though he may not have been instructed daily in the ways of God, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. There's something to be said here about this personal faith in God. Amen? As we think, we think about personal faith, this faith that we have is in, on an individual level with our Lord. The Bible says he's not far from us. He's near. His word is near. Asa sought the Lord with the light that was given to him. And Asa had prepared his heart to seek the Lord. And now as king over Judah, a young man is leading with a heart for God. I'm reminded of those words from Paul to Timothy. Do not let anyone look down on you because you are what? Young. But set an example for the believers in your speech, in your words, in your purity, in your faith. Set an example. You see, godly leadership requires, church, 
a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Godly leadership. It manifests itself through a life that bears fruit. You see, doing good and right today in the eyes of the Lord flows out of your personal faith and sound understanding of who God is, who Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is, and what this word of truth says. Listen, we've been given the word of God and the spirit of God to know what is right and good in the eyes of the Lord. God's wisdom is also readily available to us, the Bible says in James chapter 1. If we lack it, what are we to do? Ask him. Because you see, he's a generous God and he'll give to all without finding fault. That's what the Bible says. So his wisdom enables us to rightly apply the knowledge from God's word and God's spirit into our lives in a way that pleases God. As you look at chapter 14, right on the heels of verse 2, you begin to see a few things that characterize Asa's summary of doing what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. What characterized this? Let's look at verse 3 and verse 5. We'll come back to 4 in just a moment. Verse 3, it says, He removed the altars of the foreign gods and of the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the wooden images. Verse 5, He also removed the high places and the incense altars from all the cities of Judah. And the kingdom was quiet under Him. There it is again. The kingdom was quiet. Seems to be a, a direct connection between the kingdom being quiet and Asa living his life in such a way that pleases God. Do you see the connection? I believe that connection holds true still today. That as we are obedient to God, as we are living our lives in such a way to please God, we too are going to find, just as the proverb writer says, as we trust in the Lord with all of our heart and lean not on our own understanding, as we acknowledge Him in all of our ways, He's going to do what? He is going to direct our paths. That's a good place to be, church. The first thing I want you to see here in 3 and 5 is that Asa prioritized worship of God alone. Oh, this is important. This is highly significant. Asa prioritized worship of God alone. The first piece the Chronicles writer gives us about Asa as it pertains to his doing good and right in the eyes of the Lord is that he is concerned about how his people worship and whom they ought to be worshiping. A king who has concern for his people's worship. A king who is making efforts to set straight the rightful object of the nation's worship, that being God. A king who is not afraid to remove these foreign idols, these high places, sacred pillars, wooden images. He's not content to simply raise up God alongside these other gods, but his priority seems to be to promote God alone for Judah to worship. Pretty bold stance, isn't it? We're talking about a king in a nation here in the text. But how about a king in the home overseeing a household? Men? To whom do you give allegiance and worship? Is there a top priority in the home to see that your rightful worship is to God through Jesus Christ? What things need to go? What wooden images need to be smashed, done away with? What foreign idols need to disappear? Set aside, forsaken, in order to give place to the Lord your God. 
Remember the Bible says that this God we serve is a jealous God. There are no rivals to him. God is not one to play second fiddle. He wants all of us. Asa called the nation to seek the Lord. Look at verse 4. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers and to observe the law and the commandment. Asa, you see, he got rid of some of the stumbling blocks for the nation, but he also called them, this is important, he called them to take responsibility and to seek the Lord. That's a novel idea in today's society. Take responsibility, please. There aren't many people today taking responsibility. A lot of people today want to point a finger. It's somebody else's fault. Asa's calling them to seek the Lord. In fact, he's he's calling them to seek the Lord. I want you to notice the relational aspect he attaches to the command. This is also very significant. He says, it says a text, he says, He commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers. See, Asa not only had a personal faith, but we, we see here in this verse a historical faith. That Asa is alluding to. Asa is commanding them to seek the Lord God of their fathers. He's calling them to something bigger than themselves. He's pointing them to this God who has helped in ages past. A God who worked through the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A God whose wonderful works mark the landscape of history. In fact, we today can turn to the book of Hebrews and we see in the book of Hebrews chapter 11 this gallery of faith heroes. Those who walked boldly with God. Do you see that you're a part of God's history? Do you see when when the text says that he commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers? See, I think sometimes we we live this life and we get so focused and we have these these blinders on and all we see is us and me and ourselves and maybe we see our family, our household, maybe, maybe. Oftentimes we see us. But we are part of something much bigger, grander than self. And this God that we serve is also the same God of the people we read about in the scriptures, the patriarchs and the Hebrews 11 folks. Those people... That was their God. That was the God they placed their trust in. That was the God in whom they walked with great confidence, understanding that, yes, I'm going to obey what God says, and I'm going to take my only son, that son whom I love, Isaac, and I'm going to do what he says, even though it doesn't make sense, but I'm going to trust, and I'm going to have faith that even if he does die, God can raise him back to life. That's what we read in Hebrews about Abraham trusting God, this God of our fathers. Asa, the new king, is bringing much more than fine words. A bucket full of empty promises of what he's going to do. He has a heart for the Lord God, and he's doing things that are good and right in the eyes of his God. And even in his youth, Asa is caught up in pleasing God. Young people, in your youth, seek to please God. If we pull something away here, young people, I hope we can see this in the life of Asa, and you can carry this with you. This is what he did. He endeavored to please God with his life as a young person. He brings to the throne a desire and a heart for loving God supremely. And his actions, listen, his actions follow his heart. 
He tears down these foreign idols, these wooden images, these high places, and then calls the nation to seek this God that he himself has a relationship with. Now, there's something genuine about this king. He's calling them to something that he himself knows. He's calling them to walk with the Lord. To stop with the idolatry and syncretism in Judah, which was characteristic of his father's reign. You can read about that in 1 Kings. And he's calling them to start fresh with God. Seek God and do what he says. In the king's house, I would imagine it's easy to send out memos to your subjects in the land, requiring them to do this, requiring them to do that. The command for Judah to seek the Lord is rare. Very few national leaders today are promoting their people to seek the Lord. Instead, many are calling the people to seek them, their agenda, their new plan, their new budget, their new policy. We could fill in the blank. It's more about them than God. So Asa then presents quite a novelty as king in the land in light of this. He's pointing not to himself, but to this great God that he knows. And he wants the nation to seek him as well. Asa, in the text then, we see right here starting in verse 6, going through verse 8, Asa establishes what we might call today homeland security. Okay? Six, seven, and eight. He is now establishing some homeland security. You read it with me. He built fortified cities, it says, in Judah. For the land had rest. He had no war in those years because, why? The Lord had given him rest. Therefore, he said to Judah, listen to what he says to Judah. He says, let us build these cities and make walls around them. And towers, gates, and bars lead you to believe up to this point they didn't have any. Or if they used to have them, they were torn down at this point. They were building them up. So they built and prospered. And he's building these, the text says, he's building these because we've sought the Lord our God, the Lord our God. We have sought him. He has given us rest on every side. And they built And they prospered. And then it says that Asa had an army of 300,000 men from Judah. These 300,000 men from Judah were armed with spears and shields. Got it, young men? Got the picture? 300,000 armed with shields and spears. There was another 280,000 men from Benjamin who were armed with shields and they drew bows. So if they drew bows... Who are these people? They are what? Archers. So if we do the math, we've got a lot of math folks in the, in the room. We've got 300,000 and we've got 280,000. That gives us how many? 580,000. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of folks. Now we read 6, 7, and 8. And I think we come away with some important additional information. One of the things we come away with is Asa's priority. Asa's priority is not military. It's not found in advancing technology. It's not in adding revenue to the nation of Judah by providing additional jobs. His priority is not even found in education. It's not. His priority is seeing that the nation of Judah get right the most important thing here on earth. Who are you going to worship? 
He clears the clutter. He removes many of the obstacles. He himself has a relationship with this God of whom he speaks. He then commands Judah to seek this God of their fathers, this God of history. And then out of Asa's heart for God and the children of Judah's reliance upon God, chapter 13, verse 18, as Israel and Judah were clashing, it says in verse 18, Thus the children of Israel were subdued at that time, and the children of Judah prevailed. They prevailed. Why did they prevail? Because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. The Lord brings peace in the land. There are no wars at this time. He provides an opportunity to build, to make fortifications, to prepare the land for war in the event that they ever went to war. The text says that they built and prospered. In other words, the Lord was in this. And once again, we see Asa speaking to the nation about their current status with God. He has given them rest. He is the one who has enabled Judah to build at this time, to put in place some security measures for the time to come when they will need it to protect themselves. Asa says, we have sought the Lord, our God. Asa is pointing to the common denominator of the people of God. He is our God. So we see in Asa this this personal element. He's not only Asa's God, and he's not only the God of their fathers, this historical faith that we made mention of, but he's our God, this corporate aspect of our faith. He's our God. As we gather on this first Lord's Day of the new year to worship our God. We gather, maybe we need a reminder. When we gather together on this Lord's Day, we gather to worship our God. Amen? Our God. This is our corporate worship. We are in this together worshiping the same God. That hymn talks about. The church's one foundation being Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's the chorus that says, our God is an awesome God. Awesome in the right sense of the word. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. We read in the New Testament that the church is one body and one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, Ephesians chapter 4. We share these things in common with one another being in Christ. We sing corporately to our God. We sit before the word corporately. Asking of the Spirit to apply the truths to our lives. We pray corporately, taking the needs of the body to the one who alone can transform hearts and turn our situations. We participate corporately in the Lord's Supper each Sunday, remembering as a body Christ's great love toward us at the cross. And what a delight to share in this faith together as one body under the banner of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's good news. We have opportunity to do this every Sunday as we come together. Asa knows the Lord God that he speaks of. And this God had provided him rest for a time to build. He built and prospered. He established an army ready for battle, should battle come. Some 580,000 men from Judah and Benjamin are accounted for, some equipped with shield and spear, some with shield and bow, archers ready. And the text says that these men, all of these men, were mighty men of valor. These mighty men of valor 
are characterized in that verse I read just briefly in chapter 13, verse 18. The children of Israel were subdued. The children of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. You know, it's one thing to have half a million men, fighting men, in your army. It's another thing to have mighty men of valor who know the Lord and trust him in that battle. Amen? There's a big difference. An army competent to wage war and yet filled with confidence in their God who leads them. I was thinking about this and reminded that there's another battle that's being waged today even as I speak. We still need mighty men of valor who understand the battle being waged. Men who have strong confidence in their God. Men who trust him with all of their heart and wage war with spiritual weaponry. Men, take up the armor. Don't settle for substitutes. Up to this point in the text, Asa has a lot going right for him, doesn't he? A lot of good things happening. Once you get to verses 9 and 10... You begin to put verses 2 through 8 to the test. In other words, the period of rest and prosperity is about to go through the fires of testing. Anybody here ever gone through the fires of testing? Yeah. And those fires of testing are always instructional. They're always going to teach us and show us about this faith that we profess. Asa is the new king. And he's about to go through a new test. Asa's first major leadership challenge, militarily speaking, confronts him right here in the text. Then Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men. How many men total did Asa and his army have? How many? 580,000. Zerah the Ethiopian comes against him with one million men and 300 chariots. Now you might think, well, that's not that big of a deal. It is a big deal. If you can get around on a chariot, if you've got means of getting around on a chariot versus walking around, you better believe it, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. 300 chariots. A million men. So Asa went out against him, and they set the troops in battle array in the valley of Zephathah at Marishah. If you're looking on a map... You see Jerusalem, and if you go southwest, you're going to find this valley. You're going to find Zarephah, the valley of Zarephah, and you're going to find Marishah. You're going to find that, that place just southwest of Jerusalem. If you keep going southwest, you're eventually going to run into Gerar over by the, the coast. In just a moment, they're going to find their way over to Gerar. So if you notice the numbers in the text... Judah is outnumbered 1 million to 580,000. Roughly, Judah has about half of what Ethiopia has. In addition to the 300 chariots that Ethiopia has at their service. If you were to select simply looking on paper, if you were to select a winner of this battle, you might be inclined to go with the army of a million men. Things don't look Too good here for Asa and the nation of Judah. What recourse does this young leader take? The text tells us. Chapter 14, verse 11. And Asa cried out to the Lord, his God. He said, Lord, it is nothing for you to help. Whether with many or with those who have no power. Help us, 
O Lord our God. Here it is. For we rest on you. And in your name we go against this multitude. You are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. Asa's prayer is is so instructive for us, church. Number one, before heading into battle to face Zerah the Ethiopian, he cries out to the Lord his God for help. Before just going into battle and doing it the best that he can do it, he meets up with his God before he meets up with Zerah. That in itself is highly instructional. Secondly, instead of trusting in his mighty men of valor, you see Asa's trust and confidence in his mighty God. Third, you see that Asa recognizes his situation. And yet, however tense and life-threatening it looked in the moment, it's not too big, it's not too difficult for God. I love that opening line of his prayer, Lord. It's nothing for you to help. You can do this because you're a big God. Because I've seen you work. He's acknowledging that God is fully able to help if he so desires. Fourth, I believe we see here in this prayer that Asa is relying upon God. He realizes the lopsidedness of the ensuing battle. And to the casual onlooker, the battle is a no contest in favor of the Ethiopians. But when God is involved and invited into the situation, in this case, Asa is crying out for help. Notice too, who's crying out here in verse 11. This is the king of the land. Before actively engaging his men in battle, he prays to the God who can secure the victory. The king of the nation is praying for help in the midst of a dire situation. Asking for someone's help is a rarity among kings and leaders of nations. May I go so far as to maybe add even among men. Asking for help. Asa is resting on his God for help. And finally, I believe closely connected to the previous is that Asa acknowledges God's leadership over the nation. He says, you are God. (laughs) And then he appeals to God to not let man prevail against him. So what happens after he prays? The text in verse 12 immediately tells us, So the Lord struck the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. How's that for an answer to your prayer? It seems as though taking time to pray helped the situation tremendously. Amen? The Lord struck the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah. Now, I don't know exactly what happened in those moments following Asa's humble, desperate prayer. But it seems that the Lord himself put quite a scare into the million men army of Zerah. They hightailed it out of Marishah. They're fleeing. Asa and his army pursued them all the way to Gerar, where the route continued. The Ethiopians were not able to recover, according to the text, for they were broken before the Lord. Listen, they were broken before the Lord and His army. Notice that God's the one leading Asa's army now. Asa and his mighty men of valor, they plunder the cities all around Gerar. How so? The Bible says that the fear of the Lord came upon them. All these people heard what God did. 
Spoil and plunder of all kinds were taken by Asa and his men. Cattle even. Camels, it says there in verse 15. All taken back to Jerusalem. You see, this mismatch that was in favor of Ethiopia, it changed all of a sudden when God entered the picture. When you're relying upon God to help, when he is your confidence and trust, when he is the one you depend on day in and day out, when you walk with him, you know what he can do. You can voice as Asa did, Lord, it's nothing for you to help. It's nothing. The point here, let's be careful to understand, the point here is not that Judah won or that they plundered X amount of stuff from the Ethiopians in the surrounding cities of Gerar. The point is centered on Asa's reliance upon God. The text, I believe, is drawing our attention to a living faith in the God whom we profess as Lord of our lives. You might recall the account in Daniel chapter 3. There were three young men Three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they are standing before King Nebuchadnezzar. And King Nebuchadnezzar asks a question at the end of verse 15. He's angry at these three men because they're refusing to bow down to this image. And he says to these three young men, who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Daniel 3, 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king and said, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, that's the key, our God, not just the one we talk about, our God whom we serve, they said, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, I love this verse. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. You see, the issue for these three young men was not predicated upon whether God showed up in that moment of the fiery furnace or not. Their answer wasn't changing in light of whether God was going to rescue them. Even if he didn't show up to rescue them, these three young men were resting upon the Lord. They had confidence that God could rescue them if he so desired. You see, faith is not contingent on God always, always always rescuing you from those trials and earthly troubles that come your way. Faith is contingent upon your full belief. There's the full belief we talked about earlier. Full belief that God is who he says he is and that he's a rewarder of those who do what? Diligently seek him. Hebrews 11, verse 6. I mean, all you got to do is read through Hebrews 11 again. Read through Hebrews 11. And you're going to notice that many of them died cruel deaths but they live by faith. You're going to see folks sawn in two. You're going to hear about martyrs, folks left for dead, but they relied upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if you don't see God bringing victory in your earthly trial, is that going to dictate to you the way that you respond to him? Are you going to push him to the side when he doesn't meet your expectations? Psalm 40, the first part of verse 4 says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. You know, I was yesterday at a funeral. My cousin passed away this past week. I believe he was 37 years of age. Died of brain cancer. It's sad, no doubt, that he's not here. But his testimony, his life testimony, is 
powerful. One of the things that was shared yesterday about my cousin, Andrew. One of the young men who knew him intimately, good friend of his ever since they were little boys. He made the comment, he said, Andrew knew the Lord intimately and therefore could trust him. His life, the last five, ten years, really. I mean, these last couple years he was dealing with brain cancer and different things that go along with that. He was working through a lot of that. Andrew's married. They have two little boys. It's hard. But his life speaks volumes of how someone can have confidence, full dependence, trust, in God through that relationship with Jesus Christ even through hard time even through suffering pain here in this life you see I think oftentimes we're programmed to think that what we're going to leave behind is going to be charted on some great achievement list Uh, the world likes to What have we achieved? But with Andrew, I don't know that it was necessarily what he achieved. It was who he was. He was a young man who loved the Lord. And I'm grateful for that. He leaves behind him a legacy of a young man who walked with the Lord and even though he was going through all this hard stuff he could still trust his God because he had a relationship with him he knew this God do you know him this morning do you have a rest of mind resulting from full belief who God is? Is there a confidence? Is there a trust? Is there a dependence upon this God whom you serve? Asa relied on his God. He knew him. And because he knew him, he knew where to go when trouble came. See, that's just, that's a big part of it. When you know him, you know where to turn. David, remember when he sinned? David goes to God, Psalm 51. Against you and you alone have I sinned. David is a man after God's own heart, not because he was without sin, but because he knew where to go when he needed to take some things to the Lord. Sin in his life, trouble in his life, whatever it was. He knew where to turn. You might not have a million man army staring you in the face like Asa did. But some of you might be right now in the midst of a trial that looks pretty frightening. I'd encourage you from the life of Asa here in chapter 14. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Go to him in prayer. Perhaps even before doing that, see that you have established a relationship with this God we spoke of this morning through Jesus Christ. The Bible says that whoever calls upon the Lord shall be saved. We can begin ridding ourselves, those around in the home, ridding, getting rid of, forsaking, moving stuff, getting it out of the way, idols, obstacles that are keeping you from the Lord. For Asa, worship was priority number one. Are you diligent to worship this God whom you profess? Call upon his name. Cry out to him regularly. Take his word into your mind, into your heart. Hide it there. 
Because I believe, church, there's coming a day when you're going to need these words. Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. Is he your God this morning? If he's not, I pray the Lord would awaken you to see that he is. For in these days ahead, as we begin a new year, no doubt trials, if they're not currently at your doorstep, trials are coming. It's been said that we're either coming out of one, in the middle of one, or it's coming. And as we go through these trials of life, church, we need to be able to rely on someone other than ourselves. I pray we take a, a lesson learned from Asa here this morning. He cried out to the Lord. He rested upon this Lord, his God. And I pray that it be true for us as well. Will you rest in him this day? Let's pray. Father, it is so good to be able to open your word and see that words that were penned thousands of years ago are still so timely and relevant to us today. We thank you that you have given to us your word of truth. And I pray, Father, as we read about this young man, Asa, who was leading a nation. Oh, Father, I pray that we too would be diligent to worship you. We sing about worshiping the King, all glorious above. Father, I pray that we would be diligent to worship you, not just as we gather together corporately on a Sunday morning, but that our lives would be about worshiping you. Remove the things, Lord, in our lives that need to be removed that we might see you clearly. And I pray, Father, that we would have a rest of mind resulting from a full belief in who you are, who your son Jesus is, who the Holy Spirit is and how the Holy Spirit operates and works in our lives and We would be certain of this word that you've given to us. Father, may we be a people that rely and walk by faith, trusting in you no matter what may come our way here on earth. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.